Well, please turn your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. It's a neat privilege uh, this morning to be able to worship with you on a on the first day of a new year and, and really to have the opportunity to, to talk to people on the first day of, of a new year. It's kind of a, a rare, rare privilege. So looking forward to been enjoyed this morning, looking forward uh, to our time to open God's Word together, Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We're, right now we're in a series in the, the Pentateuch, and we've taken a couple weeks off of it. Next week, Lord willing, we will finish up kind of a, a three-part series. This will be our fourth message of the three-part series, kind of laying a foundation of what the, the law is, and then we'll, um, I guess, laying down the law, I, you could call it. Um, we're talking about kind of a foundation of the law, and then we're going to be uh, talking about the Ten Commandments and going through some, some sections of the Pentateuch, that will be uh, that will we'll begin that again, Lord willing, uh, next week. But but this morning, kind of a, a different message. This morning, looking at Ecclesiastes two, and kind of talking about some things, maybe to to uh, think about our our new year together and how to uh, use it for God's glory, and hopefully it'll be encouraging for you as we look at God's word together. And so, if you're able to. If you would stand in honor of God as we read his word together, I'm going to read just the, the first 11 verses from this second chapter. We'll be looking a little bit more of the chapter later on the message, but, but I'll begin here with these, these verses. Beginning in verse 1, this is the, the preacher writing. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines that allied to the children of man. So I became great. And surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done. And the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Skipping down to verse 24, the conclusion he reaches, there is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him who can eat or who can have enjoyment. For the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner he has given the busyness of gathering, the business of the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. You may be seated. May God 
encourage us through his word this morning. And, and Father, we do again just beseech your goodness to us. Thank you that we can worship together this morning. We pray that as you allow that 2017 would, would just be a year in which we expend ourselves for your glory. We thank you for your son Jesus and pray this in his name. Amen. All of us struggle to do work that glorifies God. We struggle to do work that glorifies God in a way that glorifies God, and I think different ones of us struggle with that in in different ways. Uh, Some of us may struggle to glorify God in our work in terms of the anxiety we feel when we do it, or some of us may struggle with with, uh, not working hard enough. Some struggle perhaps with working too hard and for me, one of my struggles, and I hope this is not too autobiographical this morning as, as we begin, but for me, uh, one thing that I've struggled with for as long as, as I can remember is with making um, an idol out of work, with struggling to find my significance in the work itself. So in, in other words, instead of seeing work as a means by which to glorify God, I often have seen work as an end in and of itself, something I have struggled with, and I'm sure others of you could say the same. I can remember being a, a young boy and reading books and just being drawn to the, the characters and the stories who would start their own donut business or would be engaged in a newspaper route or learn some sort of skill and just being really drawn to those characters. I, I can remember uh, kind of like in the, the late 80s, my parents would sometimes let us watch uh, that, that television show Family Ties. And there'd be that that character on Family Ties named Alex P. Keaton, played by Michael J. Fox. And and this character was kind of this super conservative, uh, overachieving uh, high school and then kind of a college kid. I can remember not understanding that that was a joke. Like, I thought that was someone that I should model my life after and just being really drawn to that character. And I kind of struggled. It never entered my mind that hard work would be potentially a bad thing. Hard work and all the books I read and the people I was around, hard work seemed to be universally applauded. And so it never entered in my, I knew you shouldn't be greedy. I knew that you should try to glorify God, but it never entered my mind that, that there'd be a point at which hard work wouldn't be a good thing. Did that through high school and, and kind of in college as I was around other students and you know, living there on the campus, I kind of began to notice that perhaps, uh, perhaps I was wired a, a little bit differently. Maybe there's some things wrong in my thinking in terms of how other people viewed it. But my thought was, well, those people are just kind of lazy. Uh, I'm a go-getter. I'm going to accomplish things. And again, uh, struggling with some things I didn't even know I was struggling with. And I think I've shared this before, but in seminary, one of the first weeks there, they gave us a, a personality test, and and I failed. No, that's a joke. Um, is this on, everyone? Okay. No, I, they gave us a personality test, and, and <laughs> Kent is groaning back there. Sorry, Kent. Um, they gave us this, this thing and this test, and they, they told us that it was to kind of assess how we were doing and, and that we would perhaps be hearing from the counseling department if there were some areas in our life that they sensed that we were struggling with. And so I, I took this test, and I didn't want to be contacted by the counseling department, so I, I knew I was kind of wired tightly wound tightly, so I, I kind of tried to, to tone it down. I don't remember the test exactly, but there were statements like, I believe it is always important to uh, strive for perfection. 
you know, on a scale of one, disagree, 10, strongly agree, and, and I tried to mark like six, even though I thought 12, you know, things like that. And I can still remember one morning opening up my um, little mailbox on campus and, and having that slip from the counseling department, and it said, uh, you know, Daniel, uh, we've got your results back and would love to spend some time with you talking about areas you might struggle with in the future. said, there's some good things about your personality that God can use for his glory, and, and yet there are some potential challenges you might face. Uh, we, we see in people like you a, a tendency towards perfectionism. They can, in their work relationships, and when they get into ministry, they can have unfair, unrealistic expectations of people, and there can be a high tendency toward burnout. And I can remember reading that and thinking, perfectionism? Well, that sounds like a compliment, and throwing away the slip of paper, right? It has hurt me spiritually, and there have been just some very hard lessons that that God has had to teach me through some very gracious people, but um, there's problems there, right? There's problems in, in seeing and valuing work and seeing our significance in work instead of seeing work as a means by which to glorify God. And it manifested itself in, in some ways in my life, but it manifests itself in your life as well. All of us labor post-fall. All of us struggle to do work that glorifies God in a way that glorifies God. And for some of us, it's making an idol out of work. For some of us, it's, it's making an idol out of pleasure, not engaging in the work that God has called us to do. There are different ways that different ones of us struggle. Some of us struggle with anxiety and fear in our work, in our labor. It manifests itself in different ways in different ones of us, but all of us struggle to glorify God in our work, to do work that is eternally beneficial. And so what I want to do this morning here on the, the first day of a new year, this, this year, 2017, I want us just to spend some time thinking about how can we engage this year in work that will glorify God, not only in terms of the content of the work, but in, but in how we do it. That's what I want to walk through with you this morning. We're going to talk about some foundational truths and then draw some conclusions from Ecclesiastes 2, some, some cautions, some uh, resolutions for the new year, if you will, and, and then we'll, we'll talk about some practical things as well. Now, we're not going to do a, a post-Sunday app this mor- uh, tomorrow, this week, but um, if you're interested in what books have kind of helped shape my thinking on this subject, there's, there's kind of three that I've, I've gleaned a lot from. One, you've heard me mention many times before, perhaps, uh, What's Best Next by uh, Matt Perman, What's Best Next. Uh, the other is called uh, Do More Better, A Practical Guide to Productivity by Tim Challies. And uh, the third is kind of a secular book that I've found helpful in terms of using my resources for God's glory, my time, how to manage information. Uh, it's Getting Things Done by David Allen. So those are some books that um, I've found helpful, especially What's Best Next, if you're looking for a great book to uh, read this year. But again, I want, I want your year to matter. I want my year to matter. I want it not only to be productive in the sense that things are accomplished this year, but my goal would be that 2017 would be a year that has eternal benefit, that the things that take place this year are effective not just in terms of the things that happen this year, 
but that my year and your year, our year as a church, would be a year that has benefits on into eternity. That would be my desire. Not just in what we do, but how we do it. And so let me lay out three truths and then about good works, and then we'll lay out some truths about some conclusions from that. Here's, here's the first. God created us to glorify him by doing good works. That's a foundational truth for us to appreciate and understand. You look at Genesis chapter 1, right? And there, at the very beginning, as we see why God create, created us, uh, we look at verse 26, and God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And then listen to some, the, the first words that he speaks here to them. It says, he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, over every living creature that moves on the earth. As you look at the creation of, of marriage described in chapter two, we read that God took the man, he put him in the the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. Then God looks at the situation, sees man by himself, and says, it's not good that a man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And he fashions Eve. God has created us for labor. He's created us for work. Isaiah 43, 7, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, says God in Isaiah 43. God, Isaiah, or Genesis 1, again, we see in that that verse 28, that the word subdue, and, and as one person puts it, that, that word subdue implies that Adam and Eve should make the resources of the earth useful for their own benefit. This implies that God intended them to develop the earth so that they should come to own agricultural products and animals and housing and works of craftsmanship and beauty, eventually buildings. God intended you and I to engage in work for his glory. We see this in terms of the Christian life as well, right? 1 Thessalonians 5.15, seek to do good to one another, to everyone. John 15.8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Now, it's important for us to acknowledge, understand, we're not saved by good works, right? We're not saved by good, I don't do good works and get saved, but Part of my salvation is to engage in good works. I'm saved and then I engage in good works. Ephesians 2.8.9 is a passage that hopefully you are very familiar with, a, a passage that we turn to often when we're talking about our relationship with God. And I think as, as Protestants, we've done a, a very good job of, of affirming this truth that we're saved not by good works, but we're saved by God's grace. And yet, in Ephesians 2.8.9, in the context, we see that good works do enter into the picture in terms of what comes out of salvation. Ephesians 2.8, by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Verse 9 is very clear, not a result of works that no one may boast. But then he goes on to verse 10 and says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the picture there is so clear. You and I have been created by God. We're saved by God, by his grace. And he, Paul makes it very clear, your salvation, your, your entrance into relationship with God is separated from your works. You, you don't work and then 
get into this relationship with God. And yet, as you're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, believing in him, receiving Christ's righteousness apart from your works, you're saved. And then verse 10 goes on to say, now, now we're his workmanship, we're created, we're in Christ Jesus, and, and we're created for good works. God has created us to glorify him by doing good works. Now here's the second truth. The second truth is that the fall affects my ability to engage in the work that God has called me to do. My, the fall affects my ability to pursue this purpose for me, right? We see this in Genesis 3. To Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree with which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all the days of your life, thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. What do we see there in Genesis 3? Because of the fall, man's ability to engage in meaningful work is, is hindered, it's, it's hampered. Matt Perman puts it this way. Sin lies behind the villain of lack of fulfillment. The reason we lack fulfillment in our work, Perman says, is because we aren't fulfilling our true purpose. We've sinned and deviated from God's path. What a tragedy. We have a purpose, the highest possible purpose, to reflect and glorify God, and yet we can't fulfill it. This is a, a terrible situation. And maybe you've seen that reality lived out in your own life as well when it comes to working with your kids or when it comes to, to laboring at work. There's a lack of fulfillment, an inability to, to achieve the significance for which God has created you to have. So often, so often we have this understanding. We, be, we believe, mistakenly, we believe that that work will lead to peace. And you can kind of fill in that, that, that blank of what work is however you want. But we believe, okay, if I, if I just can get my, my family situation under, if I, under control, if I can just get kind of kids where they need to go, where the kids need to be, then I can have peace. Or if I can just get this project at work done and completed, then there will be peace and I'll have fulfillment. Or if I can, if I can just get my email inbox to empty, ha, then I can get to peace, or I can just get through my to-do list, or get my to-do list under control, then I can have peace, or if I can just get these files organized, or this, this cupboard organized, or, or whatever it is, I just get this, this work done, then that will cause me to have peace. And uh, what we understand in Scripture is that that's getting the, the order exactly wrong, exactly reversed. The fall affects my ability to pursue the purpose of glorifying God, and yet I mistakenly believe that if I, if I just do work, that will lead to peace in my life, and that is not what Scripture tells us. Here's the third truth. The gospel allows me to pursue the purpose for which I was created. What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news, right? It's the good news that we can be saved from dead works and made alive by God's grace through faith alone and in Jesus Christ alone. And now, in Christ Jesus, in him, in my new life, I now have the ability to pursue good works. I now have the ability to pursue the thing 
for which God created me. I want to read a couple verses here and, and listen to the connection that Scripture draws between the gospel and good works. Titus 2.14 talks about Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, you see the progression there? It's not that we get zealous for good works and get saved. That's not the order. What do we see? We see God redeemed us from lawlessness. He purifies for himself, a people for his own possession, and then those people who have been purified by God's grace now are zealous for good works. 1 Corinthians 15 is a passage that talks about the gospel and the resurrection. It talks about the, the, the core truths of the gospel, the beginning of the chapter, and it talks about the resurrection of the believer. And then you come to verse 58, and Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast. So in light of the, the reality of the resurrection, your new life in Jesus, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 9, 8, and God is able to make grace abound to you so that having sufficiency, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. And again, notice the order. It's not like I abound in good work and then I'm then I have sufficiency in all things. It's like get your get your life in order and then you can then you can have the sufficiency of Christ in all things. No, you have the sufficiency of Christ at all times, in all things, and, and then you abound in good work. You say, well, what is, what is this good work? I think it's important to define that rightly. One person writes, good works are deeds done in faith for the glory of God and, and the good of others. The, the things we do by faith that are for the glory of God and the, and the good of others. And I think sometimes we have a mistaken series of boxes in our life when it comes to work. We have one box that's like bad work. These are bad things that we do. And everyone, these are bad things. None of us should, should do these bad things. So, you know, when I uh, steal something or I lie about something or I, I kick a puppy, I mean, these are bad works. And those go in the, the bad works box. And we all agree these are bad things, right? And then we have kind of a, a good works box. And these are the things in our life that are, that are good works like, and we, and we think of this box as the, you know, praying or sharing the gospel with someone or doing ministry or giving to the board. That's the good works box. And those are the good things we put in there. And then we kind of, in our, in our minds, we have a, a neutral box. And these are the things that aren't necessarily good or bad in our life. We, we go to work and we put in a, an eight or nine hour day or whatever. We... Um, mow the lawn, or we fix a fence, or we do something like that. And what I would suggest to you is that's not a, the right way to see your life. God doesn't tell us we have a good works, a bad works box, and a good works box, and a neutral box. God has said all the things we've been called to do in life are to be done for, by faith for his glory, and so everything should be part of the good works box, Right? There is no neutral aspect of our life. Paul would tell Timothy, he's talking about widows, and he says, the widows help them who have a reputation for good works. And then listen to all the things that Paul describes as good works. 
bringing up children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. That should be a life-transforming truth for us. God has created us to glorify him by doing good works. The fall affects my ability to pursue this purpose, but the gospel, placing my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins, receiving new life, allows me to recover the purpose for which I was created, and that means every facet of my life can be pursued for his glory. There's no facet of my life that is, that is not part of my pursuit of good works. I mow my lawn. I do it for the glory of God. Go to a movie. I do it for the glory of God. All aspects of my life are to be used in, in pursuing God's glory and are to be part of this, this process of, of doing that which is, is right, that which is good. Dan Cathy, the president of Chick-fil-A, one time was speaking to a group. And at, at one point in his message, he quoted Matthew 5.16. Matthew 5.16 says, you know, let your light shine before men so that when they see your, your good works, they can give glory to your Father in heaven. And Dan Cathy, the, the president of this, this fast food restaurant, he, he changed the wording and he said, let your light so shine before others that they may see your clean parking lots and give glory to your Father in heaven. What's his point? His point is that, that even as a fast food restaurant person cleaning the parking lots that people are coming to, it should be, it should be done in such a way that, that God is glorified. And I think he's exactly right. All that we do is to be used for God's glory. And our lack of fulfillment in life is a reflection that we're not doing the work that God has called us to do. The world tells me that working hard or pursuing pleasure, whatever it is, will lead to peace. The gospel tells me peace comes first and then work follows. If you have that understanding backwards, if you're trying to pursue peace through works, you're fighting a losing battle. Now, with that as our background, let me, let me draw some some other thoughts, some conclusions, a couple conclusions here about good works, and we'll spend some time here in Ecclesiastes 2. Here's, if all that's true about good work, that God has called me to this, the fall affects my ability, but the gospel allows me to recover it, here are a couple conclusions I draw. First is this. The first is, I want to avoid pursuing vain things. I want to avoid pursuing vain things. I hope you're still there kind of in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And look at, look at the text with me here. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, and uh, we, re, we begin reading in verse 1. And in these first two verses, the preacher draws his conclusion. And he's, he's going to talk about how he reached that conclusion beginning in verse 3. But he kind of tells you what his conclusion is and what he, what he tried to do. He says, come now, I'll... I said in my heart, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. And he, he says, I realized that was vanity. I said of laughter, it's mad and of pleasure, what use is it? And then he describes this, this uh, journey of hedonism he took himself on. I searched with my heart, he says in verse 3, how to cheer my body with wine. Verse 4 says, 
I, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks. I planted on them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I, I bought slaves. He says, I, I had herds and flocks. Verse 8, I gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, men and women. I had many concubines. He describes the sensual pleasures here, the delight of the sons of man. I became great. I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. And, and notice here, there was an outward and an inward commitment to pleasure. Whatever he says in verse 10, my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. So he's looking around and, and anything he sees that could potentially bring him pleasure, he says, that, I'm, I'm going to have that. And it's also this, this inward drive. He says, I kept my heart from no pleasure, and my heart found pleasure in all my toil. Now, what's happening here? There's the, the words that he uses here to describe this pursuit of pleasure are words that we, use, we, we see used to describe work. He toils. He strives for it. This, this thing that God has given us, this desire to work, to, to create, to, to subdue, that good thing that God has given us, he turns to worthless things. Instead of working as God has called him to work for the things that God has called him to, to work for, this preacher, as he describes himself in chapter 1, turns himself to, to a person who, who toils after pleasure. And if it was ever possible for a, a person to achieve joy in life, long-term joy in life by pursuing worthless things, he would have done it because he says, there's, there's nothing I denied myself. Everything that I could possibly want, I, I went down that path and I pursued it. Physical pleasure, sensual pleasure, financial pleasure, luxurious homes, uh, fruit, food, whatever it is, I, I, I tried it and I, I didn't deny myself anything. And what's, what's the conclusion that he reaches? He says, he understands that the things that he pursued were temporary. He says it was vanity. And then we also see that he understands the, the person whose glory he sought was a person who couldn't hold on to that glory. It was himself. I believe that one of the, the problems you and I have as part of the North American Christian culture is we've not thought deeply about the things which we pursue. We have the ability to deny ourselves nothing in a very real sense. We have the ability to pursue physical pleasure. We have the ability to pursue financial pleasure. We can build luxurious homes for ourselves. We can deny ourselves nothing. And I believe that for the North American Christian, very often we haven't examined the things that we're toiling for, be it the, the hobby, be it the, um, the, the amusements we give ourselves. And we haven't said, looked at it and said, okay, is this a valuable thing? You know, is it, is it worth the cost to me to, to pursue this this ability, this talent, this hobby, this thing, this, this pleasure, 
what exactly is it that I'm spending my time striving for as a parent? What is it that I'm encouraging my children to strive for? What is it that I'm turning their hearts to? And we haven't really looked at it and said, now, now what is, this? is this a vain thing? Anything that he desires, he pursues. And he comes to realize a lot of this stuff that he's pursued is, is worthless. He looks at it. Okay, I'm going to pursue this. And then he looks at it carefully. Okay, this is, this is vain. You may have heard the story a couple years ago of a man, I believe it was in the United Kingdom, who thought that he had stumbled upon some uh, ambergris in, on the beach. Ambergris is this very valuable substance, and it's used in perfumes, and you know, it's worth tens of thousands dollars a pound. He thought he'd stumbled on just a huge quantity of it, and and uh, he thought, I'm wealthy, and he put it on eBay, and was trying to sell it, and, and then he sent it off to be examined, and they took it to a laboratory, and they examined it, and they said, um, bad news, this isn't ambergris, this is uh, whale fat, which apparently is less valuable. Okay. It's worthless. I don't know if it's worthless. It's worth something. Not worth a lot. Now, <clears throat> Many of us have not taken the time to examine the things that we've pursued. I mean, what is this? What exactly is this that I'm pursuing? And, and my, my suspicion would be that even those of us who, who think that we're pursuing things of value might ultimately found, find in eternity this wasn't as valuable as I thought. You know what ambergris is? Ambergris is whale vomit, okay? It's valuable, but a person who spends their life pursuing even something valuable like whale vomit, at the end of their life, they've pursued whale vomit. You know? Many of us are, are pursuing not whale fat, whale vomit. At the end of our life, we're going to find out, you know what? This wasn't as valuable as I thought it was either. I don't want to spend 2017, I don't want to spend my life pursuing vain things. Secondly, I want to avoid pursuing good things in a vain way. I want to avoid pursuing good things in a vain way. Look again here at chapter 2. We'll skip down to verse 18. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. And I looked at all, all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. And here I think he's describing a toil in which he was toiling after good things. And yet, Again, he finds that the person for whom he toiled is himself, and he cannot hold on to it. And the, the way in which he pursued good things, ultimately, he also finds it to be vanity. And so things that God has called him to pursue, like, like food and, and, and clothing and, and, and to labor, he finds that it also is not that which brings fulfillment. How do we know when we've pursued things and good things in a vain way, how do we know when something like productivity, for example, accomplishing things has, has become an idol? A lot we could say here, but, but just, just one thought I'd give you. We know it's become an idol when it, when it doesn't bring joy. We know that work, that labor, that productivity has become an idol in and of itself when it doesn't bring the, the joy of the Spirit the fruit of the Spirit is, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. As we pursue things and, and make the things that we're pursuing 
the end instead of a means to glorify God, we find that there's just a lack of fulfillment. Psalm 127 is a a very powerful psalm. It's, it's a psalm that uh, our families had engraved in kind of the, the rings that, that we have that we have for our kids. And l- listen to how Psalm 127 begins. It's talking about the family and the context, but there's some things here that have, that have helped me and shaped me in my understanding of how to approach my family. The psalmist says in verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor, you know, it in vain. Unless the, unless the Lord guards the city, the, the watchman waketh in vain. And then verse 2 of Psalm 127 has been a verse that has just um, caused me to go to the Lord many a time. Verse 2, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. What a hard truth to grasp. It's, it's in vain that you get up early. It's in vain you stay up late. Work, work, work. You're eating bread, but it's, it's the bread of, of anxious toil. That's not work that's from the Lord. That's not the fruit of work that's from God. Why? How can you know that? Because God, God gives his beloved sleep. Rest in him. Joy in him. I don't think this means you go to work every day like you know, the dwarves in Snow White and the seven dwarves whistling while you work all the time. I'm not saying that. But, but I believe if, if I can look at my work and not see the joy of the Lord, even in the midst of the hard circumstances of, of toiling with thistles and thorns, it's not work that's done in a good way. It may be good things, but done in a vain, thing, a vain way. Here's, here's the third thing. I want to pursue good things in a good way. That's my prayer for me and for you, for our church for 2017, if the Lord allows. I want to pursue good things in a good way. And, and here's what we begin to read in verse 24. And this is, by the way, in Ecclesiastes, the first time the, the Lord is, is really mentioned. He's, he's mentioned kind of just in a, kind of a throwaway way in chapter 1. But now, for the first time, we really see God enter the picture in this book of Ecclesiastes. He says, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he's given the busyness of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after win. And, and now we're back to the gospel, right? We're back to the gospel. How, how can we find joy and how can we do good things in a, a good way? Well, we, we look and we say, okay, all, this, all that I have is ultimately from God. And as I eat and I drink, all this is going to be done to God's glory. And yes, the, the, the fall has affected my ability to rightly work. But by the gospel, by coming to God and trusting in his grace alone, I can have a new life. And in this new life, I can live in such a way that pursues his glory. As I, I can pursue his glory as I eat. I can pursue his glory as I drink. I can pursue his glory as I play a game with my kids. I can pursue his glory as I go to work. I can pursue his glory in my friendships. I can pursue his glory as I stay at home with my kids. I can pursue his glory in all things. I can do good things in a good way for God's glory. Let me just give you um, a couple thoughts. 
as we close here about uh, how, how to do this, how, how to pursue good things in a good way. Number one, I, I need to determine what good works God would have me do, right? Just some practical, practical thoughts. I, I need to determine what good works God would have me do. The, the psalmist says in Psalm 39, you've made my days a few handbreadths. And the days that I have left, I don't know how many days I have left. I just know that the days I have left now are less than the days I had 20 years ago, right? And so I think it's very important for me to determine what, what are the good works that God would have me do? What's, what's his purpose for me? Why has he placed me in the place that, that he has? Again, I mentioned uh, What's Best Next. That was a life-transforming book I, I read a couple years ago. And a couple years ago, it had me, uh, as I went through it, uh, Matt Perman suggests that you, you, you kind of define your role. This is, a, this is kind of a, a graph I did a couple years ago. Um, I don't know if you, you probably can't see it very well, but essentially what I did, kind of in the middle, I said, what are my roles? What are the things that God has, has called me to do? And then I kind of listed all the different, kind of three main areas for my life. You, you might have four or five. But one is just my personal life, intellectual, physical, um, spiritual development. You know, what, what, are those, what are those things I need to be doing in those areas? And then and family, what are, the, what are the roles that God has called me to as, as a husband and father and son? So I thought about my, my family. I'm responsible for their spiritual health, their physical health, their physical provisions, the finances in our home, developing our relationships, being a, a good a brother and, and son and my, with my extended family, son-in-law, brother-in-law. And then I kind of thought, okay, what, are the, the, what, what is my job in my ministry? What are the ministry areas that God has called me to engage in? And I talked with the elders. What are the, the areas that fall underneath my responsibility? As I went through those things, I just kind of listed out, you know, these, these areas of my life. So, okay, this, this is what I need to be doing. And as I looked at these areas, it became, I know it sounds very simplistic, but it became very convicting as I realized a lot of my time is, is spent in places other than where God has called me to be. A lot of my time is spent doing things that God wouldn't necessarily have me doing, not doing the good works God has called me to. A second thing is, is I realized, and I would encourage us to this year, I need to structure my life so that the things God has called me to do are, are prioritized. I looked at my calendar. I looked at the things I was doing, the projects I was taking on, and said, God, let my life reflect the things that are prioritized. I looked at my calendar and looked at the things I was doing and realized my, for example, my involvement in my extended family's life was, was very minimal, and I, I wanted to, to change that. I was spending more time on other things and wanted to structure my life so that those things were prioritized. Thirdly, I need to structure my life so that these things God has called me to do are, are pursued and there was just a, a, a neat journey God took me on, and talk about that in a different context some, sometime, but of, of architecting my life in such a way that I was pursuing those things that God had called me to prioritize, that I was making sure that my, my schedule, my organizational system, my emails, like all those things were, were used in a way that allowed me to pursue the things that God would call me to pursue, and that looks different for different ones of us, but that um, that um, book by Matt Perman was, again, very helpful in that. And then finally, and, and this, this could be very freeing for some of you this year, I need to structure my life so that I'm not distracted by other things. 
Because I'm a person who has a, a tendency to, to idolize productivity and want others to view me in, in such, find my significance in productivity and, and have others view me in such a way like, hey, that Daniel has a lot of energy or gets a lot of things done. My, my tendency can be to, to take on things that the God hasn't called me to do. Listen to what James says in, in James chapter 4. He says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a town and spend a year there and make a, a trade and profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord lives, if the Lord allows, we will live and also do this or that. That was a, it's a life-changing thought for me. I can't do everything in life, right? But I can have confidence that every moment I can do what God wants me to do. I can absolutely accomplish the things God wants me to accomplish. And in my arrogance, I have my to-do lists, I have my organizational chart, I have all these things, and yet I, I can't get everything I want done. That's a sign of arrogance when I get frustrated by that. Because at every moment I can do exactly what God wants me to do. If the Lord allows, I'll live. And then do this or that. Tim Challey says in his book, uh, Do More Better, he says, Productivity is effectively stewarding your gifts, your talents, your time, your energy, your enthusiasm for the good of others and the glory of God. And by God's grace, by the gospel, that's what I want to engage in each day, each moment of 2017 that the Lord allows, effectively stewarding the things that he's given me for the glory of God and the good of others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the ability that we have to come to you, to have life in your name. Give us your grace to be obedient to you in all things. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.